0: The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello. He was born in Missouri in Joplin, Missouri, a city in the middle of the country and sort of the middle of nowhere. 150 miles south of Kansas City, 280 miles from St. Louis, 200 miles from Oklahoma City. It's not necessarily nowhere if you're there, of course. You are there, and so are the people around you. For you, Nowhere becomes now here. But for Langston Hughes, as he grew up in the early 1900s, it was not enough. As his family bounced around the Midwest, in Lincoln, Illinois, and Lawrence, Kansas, and places like that, the black boy experienced the racism of small towns in heartland America. A racism that drove his father away, leaving the family for Cuba and Mexico, hoping to escape the racism while his son, left at home, found solace in books. I was unhappy for a long time, he later wrote, and very lonesome, living with my grandmother. Then it was that books began to happen to me, and I began to believe in nothing but books, and the wonderful world in books, where, if people suffered, they suffered in beautiful language, not in monosyllables, as we did in Kansas. Books happened to him, and eventually Langston Hughes happened to books, one might say. The 20th century is unimaginable without him. That young boy left the Midwest, first to a launching pad in Cleveland, where he discovered jazz and started writing poetry, and then, famously, to Columbia University, where racism once again pushed him out of the white world. He was denied a room on campus because of his race but Harlem was nearby. Harlem was rich with energy and African-American life. Harlem was a place for Langston Hughes to be reborn. A renaissance, one might say, and people did say, the Harlem Renaissance, and no figure was more central to it. Langston Hughes, poet, man of letters, icon, American, today on the History of Literature okay here we go welcome to the podcast i'm jack wilson host of the show thank you for giving us a try i forget sometimes that some of you are brand new but a lot of you are welcome to everyone and to those of you old stalwarts there since the beginning, or those crazed binge listeners, the completists who've listened to them all. Wow, thank you. It feels good to know that this is a community of listeners and lovers of literature, and I hope you feel the same way. Langston Hughes. I gave you a bit of his childhood already. His father is a particularly important figure in a couple of ways, but let's back up to Langston's ancestors. It's an ugly part of the story. It feels almost inevitable, but let's not shrink from it. His great-grandmothers on his father's side were both enslaved Africans, and his great-grandfathers on that side were slave owners. Hughes believed that one of them was Jewish. On his mother's side, his grandparents were distinguished, his mom's mom was an early attender of college, one of the first women to do so at Oberlin College, and her first husband was killed as part of John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry in the prelude to the Civil War. She then remarried into a distinguished family, the Langstons, which was part of the African-American elite at the time, and... She had uh, Langston's mother, among other children. Langston's mother was herself educated and a school teacher. Langston's father does not seem to have been a happy man. According to Langston, his father didn't like black people much, which Langston found strange. He didn't share this view. His father also seems to have disapproved of Langston in several ways. He wanted Langston to become an engineer and study abroad, with the idea that he, too, should escape the racism of the United States. Langston agreed to become an engineer, but he wanted to go to New York instead. His father agreed to pay. But he did not like Langston's effeminate nature as he viewed it. And Langston langston was guarded about this. And once again, we don't know anything for sure, as is the case with so many of these writers we've looked at. It's a little hard to speculate, but we know... Langston wrote some poems, unpublished ones, that suggest that he might have been gay or attracted to men, at least. Some biographers think he was, conclude that he was closeted. Others think he was not so much closeted, but asexual or passive, sexually passive. It's an important part of his life, we assume, but it's not clear where exactly it left him. It reminds me a bit of our study of Henry James. Was he gay and not permitting himself to feel it out of guilt or shame or fear, which was real, fear of ostracism, publishing ostracism, as well as societal ostracism, and danger? As we saw in our episodes on Oscar Wilde, this was not a a legally safe time to be gay. Was his father's harshness about who he was and how he Comported himself was that a source of pain for him? was he most what stifled his self-expression? Was it that fear of legal jeopardy or losing out on his publishing status or was he was he closeted even to himself, or was he someone who was not all that troubled, focused on other things? It's very hard to know. I'm glad those days are not quite over, but in our past they've changed things have changed somewhat. For the better. It's awful to read of someone with as much talent and energy as Langston Hughes and to think that a part of him, someone who was so open and so honest in so many other ways, and then to think that a part of him might have been not a source of pleasure and giving and connection with other people, but something negative. This damn world of ours keeps throwing the worst obstacles at people, including the poets. And yet, poets... Like everyone else, have somehow managed to muddle their way through and even to thrive. Hughes lived with his father for a year in Mexico after graduating from high school, trying to talk him into his plan to study at Columbia. And then, when his father finally agreed to pay the tuition, Hughes left for New York City. He arrived there in 1921 at the age of 19 or 20 and he started school. By 1923, He had left school. He was working on a ship, which took him to Africa and other places. He had a romance with a British-educated African named Anne Marie, and for a while he lived in England. He returned to live with his mother, who was now in Washington, D.C., and he made an interesting choice. When he was there, he, he was not a college graduate, but he was intelligent and capable, and he got a job working for a black historian named Carter Woodson who led the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. One might think this kind of a job would appeal to Langston and and maybe even set him on a path of doing something similar, following in the footsteps of this man he was working for. But what he found was working as Mr. Woodson's personal assistant didn't give him enough time for his own writing, for his poetry. He'd been writing poetry since high school, and he'd kept writing it at Columbia, even as he eventually dropped out of the engineering business. And he was now still writing, had been writing ever since. So instead of this, this white collar job with the black historian, he quit and worked as a busboy at a hotel, which gave him more time. And one suspects put him in touch with the kind of people he wanted to be around as well. His poetry was being published in magazines and was about to be collected into a book. He went back to school at a historically black university in Pennsylvania, Lincoln University, and then he headed back to New York City and his beloved Harlem, a place he'd always, or already, I should say, been representing in some sense through his poetry and essays, which were helping to make Harlem a cultural center. It was now 1929. The stock market was about to crash. But Langston Hughes was still on the rise. Let's hear some of those essays and poems from the 1920s, hear about the essays and actually hear the poems, and we'll see what kind of literary figure Langston Hughes was in his run-up to the age of 30 after this. (music) Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hatcast. Follow the Cat in the Hatcast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hatcast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Hughes, of course, was black, or as he often put it in the lexicon of his day, a Negro and proud of it. In an early essay, he set forth his views on a question that has always haunted poets in one way or another. Who am I? Who am I trying to be? What voice do I have? Who am I writing on behalf of, and who am I writing for? And this question, or these questions in particular, are dicey ones in a society like the America of Hughes's day, or the America, period, dominated as it is by white men, especially in Hughes' time. This isn't just limited to poetry, by the way. You hear people say, I don't want to be the first woman senator, I want to be a senator. Or, I don't want to be the best Asian American filmmaker, I want to be an American filmmaker, or a filmmaker, period. Or, I don't want to be an African American novelist, but a novelist. We see it with regions as well. I don't want to be a Southern American novelist. I want to be an American, Jewish American, Indian American, all of the, call it the question of the hyphen or the dilemma of the qualifying adjective. In a way, how you're labeled is out of your control. You can insist on being called something or treated in a particular way, but others decide. You don't always get to say what they're going to call you. What Hughes was getting at, though, in his essay it was not just how authors are viewed or categorized, or how the publishing world or academia treats them. He was getting at the decisions that artists make. What's underlying the desire to be an American poet quote unquote as opposed to a Negro American poet? If we're talking about hey, no need to. To label me as such or qualify me in a particular way, I'm as American as you are. And just because you're white and straight and male or whatever else makes you who you are, free from that extra adjective, allowed to be, allowed to just be an American, plain and simple. Well, I want to claim that for myself and say that I'm an American, plain and simple. That's one thing. Hughes, though, saw something else. He saw poets, black poets, who said, hey, I don't want to be a Negro American poet. I just want to be an American poet. And what they had in mind was to write race out of their poems. They wrote poems that if you read them on a page anonymously, you would not know that they were by a black poet. No references to black people. Formal verse and meter in the style of the day. Generic subject matter that could have been observed or imagined by anyone of any race. Hughes in that essay didn't name names, but I've seen the suggestion that he was referring to County Cullen, a fine poet who was writing in that tradition. Formal meter, European-style verse. And Hughes said to such a poet, are you bending yourself to white culture? Are there whispers in your mind that say white poetry is the best, being white is better, white is the standard, white is what... I want to be, are you a racing part of yourself to do that? In 1926, Hughes wrote, quote, We younger Negro artists who create now intend to express our individual dark-skinned selves without fear or shame. If white people are pleased, we are glad. If they are not, it doesn't matter. We know we are beautiful and ugly, too. End quote. And ugly, too. That's an essential part of understanding the other thing that Hughes wanted. Not a poetry where black people were held up as good because they could talk just like white people and act just like white people and become just like white people, indistinguishable from them, but also not where black people were elevated into some kind of higher realm of suffering and sainthood. Those were the two obstacles standing in the way, he thought. Saints and stereotypes, or I should say the tendency to turn black people into one of those two categories. One elevates, the other minimizes, but both are reductive. And the third obstacle, which is harder to pin down, that's the one I mentioned first, standardization. He called that temptation or impulse to be as little Negro and as much American as possible, as he put it. He called it the mountains standing in the way of any true Negro art in America. When Hughes looked at poetry, he was putting it in the context of the other arts he was seeing, and he saw the jazz, he saw the blues, he saw dancing, he saw movement, he heard the speech patterns, he felt the electricity of Harlem, And he said, why not this? Why not this for poetry? Why not this as the basis for poetry and art? Why not harness this and express it with joy and without apology? In his words, quote, Jazz to me is one of the inherent expressions of Negro life in America, the eternal tom-tom beating in the Negro soul, the tom-tom of revolt against weariness in a white world, a world of subway trains and work, 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 the tom-tom of joy and laughter and pain swallowed in a smile. Yet the Philadelphia club woman is ashamed to say that her race created it and she does not like me to write about it. The old subconscious white is best runs through her mind. Years of study under white teachers, a lifetime of white books, pictures and papers and white manners, morals and Puritan standards made her dislike the spirituals and now she turns up her nose at jazz and all its manifestations. Likewise, almost everything else distinctly racial. She does not want a true picture of herself from anybody. She wants the artist to flatter her, to make the white world believe that all Negroes are as smug and as near-white in soul as she wants to be. But, to my mind, it is the duty of the younger Negro artist, if he accepts any duties at all from outsiders, to change through the force of his art, that old whispering, I want to be white, hidden in the aspirations of his people, to, why should I want to be white? I am a Negro and beautiful. End quote. Okay, let's hear some of Langston Hughes and his jazz-inspired poems, starting with one published in 1921, written when he was a teenager, riding on a train through that Midwest that had formed his childhood and adolescence. This was as he headed to Mexico to visit his father and as he was crossing the Mississippi, or so it is said. The Negro Speaks of Rivers I've known rivers. I've known rivers ancient as the world and older than the flow of human blood in human veins. My soul has grown deep like the river's. I bathed in the Euphrates when dawns were young. I built my hut near the Congo, and it lulled me to sleep. I looked upon the Nile and raised the pyramids above it. I heard the singing of the Mississippi when Abe Lincoln went down to New Orleans, and I've seen its muddy bosom turn all golden in the sunset. I've known rivers, ancient, dusky rivers. My soul has grown deep. Like the rivers. It's a beautiful poem, a tribute to the ancient dusky origins of a soul then residing in the body of a poet, a, po- a body with black skin and a deep sense of history. We can feel, we can all feel this way that we stretch back through time, but Hughes puts a special spin on it right there in the title The Negro Speaks of Rivers. Abe Lincoln, a white man, makes a cameo, a white hero. He might travel on the Mississippi. But look at the black history that runs alongside him. Those who heard the singing of that river, those who also raised the pyramids, built huts near the Congo, bathed in the Euphrates. Maybe a group of white people stood on the banks of the Mississippi waving at Honest Abe as he passed by, seeing only him, reading about history and imagining only white-skinned people in that history, or painting scenes from the Bible and making everyone look European. But the black soul was there all along, listening, watching, building, bathing. Since before human history, the black soul was there, and it's matured, it's enriched, it's mysterious and full of ancient knowledge. It's grown deep like the rivers themselves. There's a surface, and there's a whole lot underneath. History, wisdom, power. It's sort of a a perfect poem in its way. Not formally perfect necessarily, but there isn't a single word or single sound out of place. And in that sense, it's more perfect than a formally perfect poem because a formally perfect poem can become a little sing-songy, right? Depending on the meter, should a poem comparing a soul to rivers stretching back through historical time, should that poem bounce along and rhyme? Or should it repeat itself here and there for emphasis as it slowly extends, impressing us with its solidity and movement, I would argue for the latter. And we should say that Hughes here owes a debt, perhaps, to Walt Whitman, who stretched American poetry out of that rigidity. Let it overflow those walls. Sound and shape were important to Whitman, not counting with one's fingers on the table and, and jamming words into slots to make them fit the, the rhythm and the rhyme. Followed the subject, and the speech, and the thought, and the breathing of the speaker. That's what Whitman began, and Hughes carried that baton. That won't be the last we hear of Whitman, by the way, but you probably expected that already. You know where this is headed. Now, there's not much to object to in that poem, I don't think. I'm not sure anybody really objected to it. It's such a a beautiful poem. But as Hughes went forward following his path, his desire to be a Negro poet, proudly so, and happy to be among the workers and not just the talented 10th, the elites, the middle class, happy to be at the jazz clubs and the dance halls and working as a hotel bus boy and among those who weren't trying to be as standard as possible, meaning as acceptable to white people, but trying to be free, to be loose to follow their own hearts and the culture of those around them. And he found this in language that also veered into dialect. This is where we do see the objections arise. Here's a poem from 1922, just one year later, where we see the direction in which Hughes is headed. It's called Mother to Son. Well, son, I'll tell you, life for me ain't been no crystal stair. It's had tacks in it, and splinters, and boards torn up, and places with no carpet on the floor. Bare. But all the time I's been a-climbing on, and reaching landings, and turning corners, and sometimes going in the dark, where there ain't been no light. So boy, don't you turn back. Don't you set down on the steps, cause you finds it's kind hard. Don't you fall now, for I's still going, honey. I still climbing, and life for me ain't been no crystal stair. Two things stand out. First is the story, the speaker, a durable woman, a survivor, a mother who's having that moment of reckoning with her child. One can imagine the child saying, leave me alone, stop hounding me, why are you so hard on me? Other kids don't have to work this hard, or study this hard, or... Excel the way you want me to. Why can't I be like them? And what do you know? You don't understand, you grown-up. The second thing, this is her comment to him. Her words of wisdom. Second thing is that this is a black woman. We know not from the text or the title, but from the dialect. This could be life hasn't been a crystal staircase instead of life for me ain't been no crystal stair. It could be, I've been climbing, instead of, I's been a climbing on. For Hughes, listening to the voice he heard, the voice of not just a woman and a mom, but a black woman, a black mom, a particular black woman, rooted in a time and place and socioeconomic class, this is the voice to use. You can imagine that other black writers and critics would say, hang on, Hang on, aren't you the one who told us about stereotypes? Isn't this a stereotype? Not all black people talk like this. Why use the word ain't and feed into that stereotype? Hughes collected this criticism. He says, My book was well-received by the white critics, but the Negro critics did not like it at all. And he gathered and listed the headlines. The Pittsburgh Courier, quote, Ran a big headline across the top of the page. This is in all caps. Langston Hughes's book of poems, trash. End quote. Oh, I hope what a what a title, what a review, what a title for the review. I hope that made Langston laugh a little bit, at least at the directness of that. Wow, Langston Hughes's book of poems, trash. Maybe that's tough for a poet. Maybe he couldn't even smile at it. But isn't that a little... Like, isn't that a little like Spinal Tap, hearing the reviews of their album Shark Sandwich? The review you had on Shark Sandwich, which was merely a two-word review, just said "shit sandwich." Um <laughs> they print, print that. that? The, the, Where yeah, they print yeah, that? That's it's not real. Is that? is it? You can't print that. <laughs> Langston Hughes, book of poems, trash. Maybe there was too much seriousness behind that headline for Langston to laugh at it because there is a serious objection being levied against Hughes and his poems. They're saying if you're playing into stereotypes, will it be misunderstood? Will this poem perpetuate the view of black people as uneducated, ungrammatical, illiterate, Hughes, I think, would have answered that it's the beautiful and ugly and it's real. There are people who talk like that. Let's present them warts and all. And who says this language is warts anyway? Who who gets caught up in that when the substance, the mother giving advice to a son, is what's essential here? Can't we overlook the trappings, the voice and the speech patterns, just as we look beyond the color of the skin to see the human underneath? And how can you see this human, this particular human, if you gussy up the language to make her sound like someone she is not? The Pittsburgh Courier wasn't the only black paper to criticize Hughes. The New York Amsterdam News ran the headline, Langston Hughes the Sewer Dweller. And the Chicago Whip said he was, quote, the poet low rate of Harlem, end quote. Hughes gathered those together, put them into an essay, and then summarized the other reviews like this Others called the book a disgrace to the race, a return to the dialect tradition, and a parading of all our racial defects before the public. The Negro critics and many of the intellectuals were very sensitive about their race in books, and still are. In anything that white people were likely to read, they wanted to put their best foot forward their politely polished and cultural foot, and only that foot, end quote. And yet Hughes went forward undeterred and following his path. It's hard to overstate just how influential music was to him in this respect. The music that he was listening to was black. It was composed by black people, performed by black people. It originated from black culture, enjoyed by white people, too. But black people were undeniably leading the way. Both blues and jazz had this cultural pedigree. Both were unapologetic about it. And Hughes followed that lead. Here's a poem called The Weary Blues from 1925. The Weary Blues Droning a drowsy syncopated tune Rocking back and forth to a mellow croon I heard a Negro play Down on Lenox Avenue the other night by the pale, dull pallor of an old gas light, He did a lazy sway. He did a lazy sway. To the tune of those weary blues, With his ebony hands on each ivory key, He made that poor piano moan with melody. Oh, blues! Swaying to and fro on his rickety stool, He played that sad, raggy tune like a musical fool. Sweet blues! coming from a black man's soul. Oh, blues. In a deep song voice with a melancholy tone, I heard that Negro sing that old piano moan. Ain't got nobody in all this world. Ain't got nobody but myself. I's going to quit my frowning and put my troubles on the shelf. Thump, thump, thump went his foot on the floor. He played a few chords, then he sang some more. I got the weary blues, and I can't be satisfied. Got the weary blues, and can't be satisfied. I ain't happy no more, and I wish that I had died. And far into the night he crooned that tune. The stars went out, and so did the moon. The singer stopped playing and went to bed, while the weary blues echoed through his head. He slept like a rock, or a man that's dead. I find this poem to be kind of fascinating. To my ear, Hughes is following the lead of the music and the musicianship. This isn't the Whitman-esque line rolling out like a sermon. It's also not marching along like a strict meter in a strict meter like Tennyson or Longfellow. Not exactly. It's definitely not as loose and free as the Negro Speaks of Rivers, which we heard earlier. Why? Why? What was Hughes doing? Why did he do it? Well, music does have a kind of meter built in. Literally, it has meter. It keeps time. It stays within certain frameworks. There are guideposts. Start with these blues lyrics, which also rhyme. Got the weary blues and can't be satisfied. I ain't happy no more, and I wish that I had died. So, rhyme is appropriate. Rhyme's part of the lexicon, the atmosphere in which this blues singer lives and breathes and thinks. The music in his head might rhyme, one can imagine. So let's keep it in the poem. But let's not follow the line length and the rhythm of his lyrics. That to me is what makes the poem so interesting. It's that conflict between the meter of the lyrics and the meter of what comes before and after, the framing of the lyrics. That's Actually, there's a couple things that interest me about the poem. One is that the man wishes that he had died, and then he sleeps like a rock or a man that's dead. That's what you get to do when life is hard. There's always sleep. That's a kind of solace, to fall into that deep and heavy sleep. My wife does that. She's lucky. When she's stressed out, she sleeps a lot. She sleeps hard. When I'm stressed out, I can't sleep at all. So... If we're both stressed out, like let's say a, a child is going off to college and bills are on their way, <laughs> you hear me breathing hard, it's a panic attack, I'm warning off at the moment, she's in bed sleeping like an angel and I'm up twitching my way through the house, my mind all glitchy, doing yoga and Pilates like a maniac, running on the treadmill, climbing the stairmaster, trying anything to get out of my head, up to and including... Putting out these damn podcast episodes. But hey, enough about me. We're talking about Hughes and the way he frames the lines, right? Maybe we could say one more thing about that he slept like a rock or a man that's dead while the weary blues echoed through his head. Maybe the blues is a kind of tonic, right? Maybe that's what helps us go to sleep. Maybe expunging those thoughts through the music, through the hypnotic sound of the blues is what helps him and helps us, those of us listening to it. Okay. The meter. Talking about Hughes and the way he frames those lines. The lyrics are there, but the lines around them are longer. Let me read it again. I'll take a deep breath to signal the quotation marks when the blues lyrics begin. Listen to how the lines before and after those lyrics are a little too long, a little too elaborate, a little too verbose. They hum along they 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 march along, they bounce along, all that serves to emphasize to my ear just how direct and plain and heartfelt those blues lyrics are, droning a drowsy, syncopated tune rocking back and forth to a mellow croon. I heard a Negro play down on Lenox Avenue the other night by the pale, dull pallor of an old gaslight, he did a lazy sway. He did a lazy sway to the tune of those weary blues. With his ebony hands on each ivory key, he made that poor piano moan with melody, oh blues. Swaying to and fro on his rickety stool, he played that sad raggy tune like a musical fool, sweet blues, coming from a black man's soul, oh blues. In a deep song voice with a melancholy tone, I heard that negro sing that old piano moan, Ain't got nobody in all this world. Ain't got nobody but myself. I's was going to quit my frowning and put my troubles on the shelf. Thump, thump, thump went his foot on the floor. He played a few chords, then he sang some more. I got the weary blues and I can't be satisfied. Got the weary blues and can't be satisfied. I ain't happy no more and I wish that I had died. And far into the night he crooned that tune. The stars went out and so did the moon. The singer stopped playing and went to bed while the weary blues echoed through his head. He slept like a rock or a man that's dead. Hmm. Two different songs, right? Two different different songs clashing with one another, one presenting the other, one standing out in relief. Let's take our last break and come back with what might be Hughes's most famous poem, because it's the most anthologized, I think. It's certainly one of them, one of the most anthologized poems in America. We'll hear that poem and fit it into the context of American poetry after this. Okay, we're back. You might remember this poem from school. I think there are many textbooks that run Walt Whitman's I Hear America Singing on one page and follow it up with this one from 1926 by Langston Hughes, I, too. It's called. I'm tempted to start with the poem itself to stay out of its way. So let's do that. Remember that Whitman's famous poem was part of his his uh, Leaves of Grass, which came to dominate American poetry. Whitman is American poetry, it was said, and even Whitman is America. We heard all about that a few uh, weeks ago in our some of our Whitman episodes. So here we go. Langston Hughes, I, too. I, too, sing America. I am the darker brother. They send me to eat in the kitchen when company comes, but I laugh and eat well and grow strong. Tomorrow I'll be at the table when company comes. Nobody'll dare say to me, eat in the kitchen, then. Besides, they'll see how beautiful I am and be ashamed. I, too, am America. It's a wonderful poem, so effective in its short and powerful declarations. It's hard to believe it's almost a hundred years old. A lot has changed. And a lot has not. Okay, so the first thing we notice is that it does not follow the Whitman-esque line. It has its freedom, but not its length. You might recall from one of our Whitman episodes how Whitman's poems unfurled like those scrolls that comedians use when they're wearing tights and robes from some other century. And they say something like, here's a a list of the people's grievances— to a king and they hold one end of the scroll and they drop the other end and the, the thing rolls across the room. It's 10 miles long. That's Whitman. Long lines delivered like a, a preacher on a stem winder, cataloging the universe, starting in Brooklyn and reaching for the heavens. Some of, Hughes's, uh, some of Whitman's poems are long. Most of them are. And this poem, I Hear America Singing, is not that long, what is it, about a dozen lines or so? But you, you'll get the idea when you hear it. Let's go ahead and hear the whole thing. I Hear America Singing by Walt Whitman. I hear America singing the varied carols I hear, those of mechanics, each one singing his as it should be blithe and strong. The carpenter singing his as he measures his plank or beam. The mason singing his as he makes ready for work or leaves off work, the boatman singing what belongs to him in his boat, the deckhand singing on the steamboat deck, the shoemaker singing as he sits on his bench, the hatter singing as he stands, the woodcutter's song, the ploughboys on his way in the morning or at noon intermission or at sundown, the delicious singing of the mother or of the young wife at work or of the girl sewing or washing, each singing what belongs to him or her and to none else. The day what belongs to the day. At night, the party of young fellows, robust, friendly, singing with open mouths their strong, melodious songs. Here we go, America. I like this poem, too, by the way. Here we go, America. The sun is bright, the grass is Wet with dew, the sky is a gorgeous American blue and the workers are out there singing happy people, eager and unafraid, hallelujah. Look at America, open mouths and big muscles and energy and work and let's go reshape the planet, forge it in the smithy of our souls. And Hughes says, good Lord, white people, remember the rest of America. Not slaves anymore, maybe, but maybe not part of this parade of whistle-while-we-workers, either. Remember who else is here? Compared with those lines, the delicious singing, the woodcutter, the plowboy, the shoemaker, the mother, and all the rest, singing with their open mouths, there's a guy standing in the corner, watching, waiting his turn. Not quite smoldering, maybe, maybe not resentful, but Damn it, he has a reason to be if he is. It's a manifesto of sorts. A bit of a warning. I'm growing strong, says Hughes. But mostly I see it as just I'm forgotten, I'm invisible, or at least overlooked. I'm shunted off to the side, but that doesn't mean I'm gone. I'm gonna laugh and eat and grow strong. I've I'm here. And always have been. Oh, we go back hundreds of years, don't we, Mr. Whitman? Or should I pronounce that? White man. You and I in America, we go back centuries, don't we? Well, guess what? You're America. You sing America. And I'm America, too. And I sing it, too. We're in this together. Like two people cinched together. Like two lovers dancing or two long-lost relatives in a tearful embrace, or Holmes and Moriarty in a death clinch falling down Reichenbach Falls. I'm in the corner, I'm in the other room, but I'm still here and I'm coming up and I'll be part of every song you sing soon enough. You will not just see how beautiful I am. You'll be ashamed at the way I was treated. Although his poem, I too, is brief and narrow and tight compared with Whitman's. It's not a big, long catalog. Hughes had a similar expansive view of the people he wanted to write about. He didn't have Whitman's Oh, What a Beautiful Morning Gusto in i too. but he had his comprehensive ambition. He just wanted to write about black life, which was one of, against the odds, toughness and underdog survival. He put that in his poems. His poetry, he said, is about, quote, workers, roustabouts, and singers, and job hunters on Lenox Avenue in New York or 7th Street in Washington or South State in Chicago. People up today and down tomorrow, working this week and fired the next, beaten and baffled, but determined not to be wholly beaten, buying furniture on the installment plan, filling the house with rumors to help pay the rent, hoping to get a new suit for Easter and pawning that suit before the 4th of July, end quote. It's a novelist's eye for subject and detail, delivered here with an essay, but delivered elsewhere by Hughes in a poet's economical and lyrical voice. Hughes also wrote novels and short stories, along with the essays we've been referring to and quoting. He was very successful in his time. I read that he was the first black American to make a living at writing, and lectures solely from his writing and lectures. He never really made it with the black critics in his day. The view of him that we saw earlier in the headlines, he was always controversial. Maybe it would have been impossible to walk that tightrope. It's one or the other. You use dialect or you don't. And if you're a critic, you object to dialogue or you don't. If you use dialogue, dialect, therefore, you have critics. And if you don't, you risk criticism on the other side or it doesn't feel true to you. Feel like you're transforming the characters you want to write about into a kind of language that they didn't use. What he did have during his lifetime was love from black people, black readers. He was popular among them. They believed he spoke for them for millions. He had a troubled personal life was full of relationships that fell apart, seeming need to pull people close and then drive them away. It's a topic we explored with biographer Yuval Taylor in our episode on Hughes and Zora Neale Hurston. He's written a book about the pair of them. They started writing a play together and then had a falling out. I think that falling out probably hurt Zora more than it hurt Langston. Hughes was the one whose approval everyone else wanted. We saw the reverence that the younger generation of black writers had for him in our episode on Lorraine Hansberry, who wrote to him so respectfully to ask if it was okay with him if she used his phrase, A Raisin in the Sun, as the title of her play. Of course, he said, use it with my pleasure. That poem is called Harlem, and it's a good way to finish. Harlem by Langston Hughes. What happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load. Or does it explode? That last line is in italics. Does it explode? We all know what dreams deferred can do eventually. With Hughes, we see what happens with undeferred dreams. Those can explode too. Okay, there we go. Langston Hughes with a little help from Walt Whitman and Spinal Tap, just a little boost. Maybe the first appearance they've made on our show. Welcome to them and to Rob Reiner, or as he's called in the movie, Marty DeBerge. My thanks to Marty and Nigel Tufnell and David St. Hubbins for being here today. And of course, two more thank yous, or five million and one thank yous, however you're counting. One to Langston Hughes for giving us his poetry and his example as a wonderful American artist. And five million to all of you who have downloaded this show and listened to it. I won't thank you all by name. That would be ridiculous. And some people might not want to have their name out there. so if They're ashamed of being a listener. So I'll just thank you. I found a happy medium. I'll just thank you all by IP address. So thank you to... 192.168.19.155 and 192.168.39.54 Wait I have to read five million of these 192.168.58.209, thank you and 192.168.78.108, dot one zero eight thank you to 192.168.... How long is this going to take? No, I'm not almost there. I've done five. This is going to take months. I know it's for the listeners. I love the listeners, yes, but are they really? Do they really care? Are they really listening for their name? 192.168.156.216. Thank you. And 192.168.176.115. Thank you as well. This will be the longest podcast episode ever. Unless we just fade out like those old radio songs. Why don't I do that? I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you next time. And in particular, thank you to 192.168.196.14. All my gratitude to 192.168.215.169. Special thank you to 192.168.235.68 along with... One ninety-two one ninety-two.